Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Today on the podcast... We'll hear Justin Trudeau tell all Canadians we must reflect on our personal behavior and then Conservative Member of Parliament, Michelle Rempel and her views. A 12-year-old Haitian girl adopted by Canadians is not allowed into this country. It's a good story. It's a sad story. You'll want to hear it. This could be perfect timing for this weekend. The book is called Lie Spotting. The author is Pamela Meyer. And how do you spot a liar? We're going to find out. Stick around. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on Trudeau today and that incident, but I do want to begin with a couple of comments that came from the man. Obviously, uh, over the past uh, weeks uh, since this uh, uh, news uh, resurfaced, um, I've been uh, reflecting, we've all been reflecting on, on past behaviors, and as I've said, I have, uh, I'm confident that I did not act inappropriately, but I think the essence of this is that people can experience interactions differently. And part of the lesson we need to learn uh, in this time of collective awakening uh, is uh, a level of respect and understanding for the fact that uh, people, in many cases, uh, women experience interactions in professional contexts, in other contexts, differently than men. You know, I just resent the fact that he is dragging everyone in this country into his morass. We're all reflecting. It's a, an awakening of conscience for everyone. We're all in this together. No, we're not. And as I said, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on Mr. Trudeau and the groping story today. I have a lot of other things to talk about. But I do want you to hear what I thought was just a remarkable, remarkable, off-the-cuff, eloquent, nonpartisan addressing of respect for women. And it came during my conversation with Michelle Rimple, the uh, immigration critic, conservative party member from Nose Hill in Calgary. Have a listen. Michelle, thank you very much. I know it's a busy day for you with the Stampede. Thanks for joining us. When you hear Trudeau say those words, how do you respond? Well, I'm going to take my partisan hat off for a moment um, because the issue of sexual harassment and addressing it in an appropriate venue is not something that should be partisan. And, And frankly, if we're going to make it partisan, all three political parties have had serious incidents. Uh, over the last several years. So, you know, and I've I've actually gone out and when I've seen it within my own party, addressed that publicly. So I want to put partisanship aside for a second uh, to to, to make my comment to you. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, I think it was three years ago now, it was right before the election, when there were two uh, NDP MPs who had, my understanding is, is that they went to their their party because there were some issues uh, in this vein that they had with uh, members of the Liberal caucus. 
And their only desire, as far as I understand it, was just for the Liberal Party to be aware of this. They didn't want it to be outed. They didn't want this to be a big public deal. They just wanted the Liberal Party leadership to know what happened. And Justin Trudeau in that moment did the exact opposite. He gaslighted these women, came out. Um, you know, he did remove these guys from caucus. And, you know, in the, in the years that have ensued, if there's been one thing that's been consistent, it's been Justin Trudeau really standing on a platform saying, I'm a feminist, almost like a commercial platform, you know, and, and when he's had to deal with these allegations in this, within his caucus, he's, he's ejected people from his caucus. So I find it completely ex- unacceptable that a ma- this is a matter of public record. It would have been different if this woman had never come out and there was never a, a matter of public account, because I do believe that her, her needs and her privacy needs to be put forward first. that needs to happen. But the reality is, is that we don't have good processes to deal with sexual harassment allegations. Uh, We don't have anything that protects the rights of victims, and we have nothing that protects um, uh, people from vexatious complaints. So the only recourse right now is litigation in the media, and she chose to do that 20 years ago, and that is her right, okay? It's not the, like, litigation in the media, I don't think is, is, is appropriate. But now, because it's a matter of public record for the prime minister who has spent all of this time gaining political credibility on taking on putting together a certain framework on how things are to react in a situation like this his response was completely unacceptable and frankly his response his you know uh, you know how i would kind of like distill it is well i don't think anything happened so everything's okay that was his initial response or i don't remember anything i don't remember that anything happened so clearly there isn't anything wrong he could have come out and said because according to this article he had apologized he could have said look something did happen it happened a long time ago i did apologize i'm contrite for that uh and if this woman is still if you know if she is still carrying an issue here i i would subject subject myself to the same process that i put forward for everyone else but i respect her and her privacy but he didn't do that he looks like a hypocrite on this issue and i I am, I'm coming at this not as a partisan, because, frankly, if he had done that, I probably would have applauded him as a conservative, but he didn't. I'm coming at this from a woman who's really sick of talking about this issue over and over and over again. I'm sick of the media saying that, you know, by us talking about this, we're re-victimizing the woman. By him having hypocrisy and not dealing with this appropriately, he's done that. He should not be left off the hook here. Nobody should, of any political stripe. Uh, and I'm just deeply frustrated. Um, and I think, if anything, this whole escapade has actually set the Me Too movement back because what it says to women who may have had an issue with somebody who is publicly adored by the media or whoever is that, well, maybe my complaint doesn't matter because if they said that they think how this transpired didn't occur, then everything's going to be okay. And that's the message that he sent, and that's wrong. So there's part one of my conversation yesterday with Michelle Rempel on the issue of treating a woman respectfully and dealing with uh, Justin Trudeau's situation. I have to say one other thing about this issue with Mr. Trudeau. I find it absolutely abhorrent that he would say that a man and a woman would see an interaction of a sexual nature differently. That's like cutting slack 
for the guy. Or more accurately, cutting slack for him. Well, she just saw it differently than I did. Many of us have a pretty good idea now from communications that have taken place, some publicly, others not, of what actually took place. And from what I know, or what I surmise I know, there's no misunderstanding possible. None. Here's more from Michelle Rempel, Calgary Conservative Member of Parliament on the issue of respect for women. Listen. It is so disappointing that the women who support Justin Trudeau, the women who have supported him uh, enthusiastically for the last several years particularly, and the women in his caucus are just accepting what Trudeau has said. They're actually applauding him, as the employment minister has done, saying that he has handled this extremely well. That's ex- that is so disappointing because that also sets the Me Too movement back because if women realize that other women are not only not going to say anything, but those who do will actually support the man who's accused of being the groper, that's such a negative, negative um, visualization, Michelle. Well, it's not just the women in his caucus that need to be let uh, put on the hook on this. It's the men in his caucus. It's his entire caucus. Look, I have lived through standing up in the House of Commons and criticizing my own party on this. And you know what? We need to have these... Feminism isn't easy. Feminism is easy when you... I'm going to rephrase that. Standing up for the rights of equality of opportunity for all persons is easy when you can politically capitalize on it. And there's really no cost to doing so. It gets hard when you have to be in a situation like this. And, you know, for the fact that the entire Liberal caucus has sort of been silent on this hypocrisy, I think it does set the movement back. I don't, I don't want to come across, I, I really don't want to come across as a partisan on this, even though it's tempting to do so because the hypocrisy is just so, so much. I want to go back to the woman who's involved in all of this. Look, she made this an, a, an issue of public record 20 years ago. So because of that, I think it is reasonable for the media to ask questions about this. But it's his handling of this situation, right? Her right to privacy should absolutely be respected. She has said that she does not want to be dragged into this. She needs to be respected. But what is wrong is how he handled this. It was him completely not setting himself to his own standard that invited more questions from the media, right? Mm-hmm, because right, he has, made, exactly. he has made a track record of this in the past. And that is what upsets me. It would have upset me if someone in my own party did this. It would have upset me if an NDP member did it. It has upset me when members of, you know, the media or other, because this is what sets the movement back. What we need to have is we need to have processes, due process, not the media, not trial by newspaper, but processes that people can complain in situations like this and then have due process applied so that you're not having people make vexatious complaints that ruin political careers or careers otherwise, but that also respect the rights and privacy of victims so that they don't have to. Like, I can't imagine being this woman right now, no, right? No, I mean, like, but I guess what is most disrespectful to her is that he, has, he just didn't address it, right? He just didn't say, look, this happened a long time ago. I apologize if she wants to come out and make more more complaints against me, I will subject to myself against the same process and standard that I put forward against everyone else. Until that time, I am not commenting further. That would have been acceptable. This 
speculation and and trying to say that you know somehow his his introspection is is how we should be supporting victims is wrong and i'm just to anybody in the media who's saying otherwise you know i was having this i i was i was in a war of words with a global news reporter this morning who said that he should have said nothing and that the media shouldn't be asking him questions that's just wrong for all the reasons that i just stated so we're having a real moment in this country we're either real about this or we're not and it's messy and it's not dignified but the right of that the, the right of that victim to her silence is should be enshrined but it should also he it is a matter of public record and the prime minister our self-proclaimed feminist in chief partisanship aside if he is not held to account to the same standards that he set, it sets this movement back and it sends a message to women who have had encounters with men of his stature and power that they, they why would any woman want to come forward after watching how this has played out for the last couple of weeks? And that's my brand of feminism. Yeah. And this isn't about partisanship. I'm just, I'm so deeply frustrated that we're even having a discussion about what is right and wrong in this situation because it's pretty clear to most people instinctively. Yeah, he made it about himself. He made the issue about himself. There's one thing, Roy, that you cannot spin in politics, because especially when you are paid by the Canadian public to be a public servant, and that is hypocrisy. It is better just to say at the front end, I don't, you know what, I'm not perfect on this. I don't, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm going to work really hard to get this right. Trudeau has cashed in a lot. He's put a lot. He's got a lot of political capital internationally with his feminist quote-unquote, bona fides, right? So it, it is absolutely, it is absolutely imperative and fair that we question those in moments like this, because otherwise, you actually set the movement back. You actually create barriers to equality of opportunity. And that so it's not just about him. It's about if you are going to make, if you are going to cash in, if you are going to cash in on some sort of an issue with sanctimony, then you better be ready. You better be ready to stand up for that when the going gets tough. I have been in those situations, and it is not easy. You, you get crapped on from all sides. You do. But you just, you have to stand up for what's right. And that is, and that's where I think he's failed in this situation. And look, I'm saying this as a woman, not as a conservative. I'm saying this is a woman who have had friends who have been sexually assaulted. I'm saying this is a woman who has standed up, stood up for women who have been sexually harassed and have no recourse for going forward. I have actually stood up and, 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 and in private circles has said, look, I think one of the things that Trudeau has done that is right is actually bring feminism and equality of opportunity to the forefront. Even if I don't agree with his policies, the discussion is good. But what has happened in the last couple of weeks is not good. It is bad. And it, you can tell I'm very emotional about this right now because it's something that's worth getting frustrated and furious about. So if the woman who has, you know, the woman at the center of this has, is listening to this today. I'm so sorry that you have had to be re-victimized on this. But it, it, it isn't about her. It, we have to respect her right to privacy, but we have to hold this prime minister to account as well for cashing in on being a feminist and then doing the opposite when the going gets tough. And that's what we need more. We need, we need our leaders to do better. I, uh, I just found that remarkable. And I think the people in uh, the nose hell riding in Calgary have one of the better MPs in, in, in Parliament. She's very outspoken, very direct. I like Michelle Rempel a lot. So, having heard that, here's a little more. And this is the last we're going to do on this issue today.
Here's a little more from the man at the center of the controversy and his attempt to explain to us that the world is round. I apologized uh, in the moment uh, because I had obviously perceived that she had uh, experienced it in a different way than I acted or I experienced it. And I think this reflection as we move forward needs to uh, continue uh, in our communities, in our places of power, in our places of work. There is an awakening going on and uh, uh, we need to take opportunities to continue to reflect on it. This is something that I've been uh, involved in for well over 20 years in my student activism and in, uh, in the outreach that I've done. Uh, and there's always more to do and more to reflect on. So he turns it around into, see, I'm such a good guy because I, I'm dragging all of you people into this so that you can reflect on your miserable lives and all the things you've done wrong. And I've been at this for more than 20 years, so you really should be saluting me for who I am and what I'm doing. And my actions were completely misinterpreted. This is what he's saying. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Haiti today is a country in chaos. There's tremendous civil chaos. In fact, the Canadian government has advised people not to go to Haiti unless they have to, or at least to be cautious, if their chosen destination is Haiti. Widleen Earl, that's W-I-D-L-E-N-E, Widleen Earl, is a 12-year-old Haitian girl left orphaned by the massive earthquake of a number of years ago. Her mother died after fleeing to the Dominican Republic and sustaining herself and her child by picking through a garbage dump on a daily basis. When Whitleen's mother uh, had great difficulty taking care of Whitleen and herself, and I don't know if there were other children involved, we're about to find out, Vaden Earl and his wife, they're Canadians, they were down there, they were working there, relief efforts, they adopted Whitleen, and for the past 10 years, this Canadian family has been attempting to obtain Canadian government permission to bring Whitleen to Canada. At present, as I understand it, she's in the Dominican Republic, and she faces possible expulsion to Haiti because of new Dominican regulations. There's been a lot said about children at the border. Well, new Dominican regulations, as I understand from Mr. Earl, means that she could be picked up by Dominican police or military and taken back to Haiti. Meanwhile, she has Canadian parents, and neither the Harper government, which had opportunity, and I believe Mr. Kenny was directly involved, we're going to hear this, nor the Trudeau government, where Mr. Trudeau is currently supposedly involved, but has done nothing to help the family, this 12-year-old child is in limbo. And if she's sent back to Haiti, again, it's a country in civil chaos. Baden Earl joins me on the Roy Green Show. He's, uh, again, Canadian, uh, Whitleen's adoptive father, and his troubles and struggles with both the conservative and liberal governments to bring Whitleen to Canada are are really disturbing. Now, we spoke about a, uh, was it a, was it a, was it last year, Vaden? 
Our one-year anniversary was last week, Roy. Was it one year last week? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember people being so shocked at what you shared with us, at what the situation was, and why Woodline couldn't join you in Canada. Where is she now? Is she in the Dominican Republic? Yeah, right now she's in DR, and she's uh, her mother is there right now, and uh, she's in the cabin, safely behind walls of the compound. Okay. But if she were to leave the compound, what could happen to her? Well, uh, since 2014, 2015, the new laws have put all Haitians on a deportation order. So they're doing random sweeps now. Some days we can go out and we can move around and it's okay. We've got a pretty good system where people, when they see sweeps happening, they kind of text each other and let each other know, and there's online message boards and stuff. But ultimately, when a sweep happens, any Haitian that's in that sweep, they're picked up. They're not picked up because they're not necessarily allowed in the country. They're picked up because their skin is too dark. They're thrown in the back of a bus that's been retrofitted with cages, and they're violently taken and dumped at the border. And they're taking children as well as adults. And half the people they're taking are actually in the country legally. They don't check for paperwork. They see them on the side of the road. They throw them in the back, and that's that. How did the story begin? How did Whitlean come into your life? We were, uh, he meant, as you said in the intro, great intro, by the way. I appreciate that. Um, we were doing humanitarian work both in Dominican Republic and in Haiti. And uh, we, we did a project near Porta Plata in DR. We focused on a group of Haitian refugees that were living and working in a garbage dump just outside the city. And they, that's what they had. They, they were recycling plastic for a couple of pesos a day, and they were scavenging for leftover food from, you know, the all-inclusives where the buffet, you know, filled you too much and you left some on your plate. Well, that's going to feed a Haitian family tomorrow. So that's what we were doing. And... We would take a, a group of Canadian teenagers into that garbage dump <clears throat> and work alongside those Haitians and help them recycle and hopefully give them enough income for the day that they could maybe improve their standard of life for a week or so. And during that time, this lady stood out to us. Uh, the first time we met her, she was pregnant, and then shortly after, of course, she had an infant on her shoulder, and that was with Lean. And her mom was there, um, little little baby on one arm, and a garbage bag in the other arm looking for recyclables and leftover pancakes and whatnot. And so you see this this this, this baby, you see what's going on, you know mm-hmm. what, what you're involved in. What happens that brings Whitleen directly into your lives? Well, we, you know, I, I mean, we were in the middle of doing a lot of work in six or seven different countries. At the time, we had a large charity that was only growing mm-hmm. and we saw thousands of Woodleans everywhere mm-hmm. but um and we, we didn't we weren't really looking to go and adopt a child but we got to know mary therese which was her her late mother we got to know her quite well and understand her story and three four times a week we would see this lady and this little girl i started just taking Woodleen um when we take our teams out to the garbage dump mary therese would be there with her and i'd say let me hold your daughter i'll put her in the shade and uh, you can go ahead and work and be more productive. So <clears throat> that's what I was doing, and I got I really bonded with this kid. So we decided, you know, we'd help the family. So we, I mean, again, she wasn't going to be adopted. She had a living mother. And then a few months later, Wilene had grown a bit. She was a couple of years old, just about three, I guess. And um, 
we got the news that one of our teams went to the garbage dump. We weren't there at the time, and they couldn't find Widlene or Mary Therese. And it just it seemed shocking because Widlene had become the, the mascot for our, our crew, right? They just knew this little girl was going to be there. Mm-hmm. And when we found that she wasn't there, we had a group go and do a little search and try and find out what was going on. So we, we located Widlene's grandmother, who lived not far away, and she let us know that Mary Therese had passed away, and um, Widlene was now orphaned. So she had sent Widlene, I mean, just for lack of any any finances or any ability to feed another mouth, she had sent Widlene back to Haiti with another family member. Um, so by now, Widlene is nearly four years old, and she's back in Haiti with a family member, a great aunt or something like that. And what happens in Haiti, and it's actually very common, it's, it's terribly sad, but it's common, and it's called the Restivac system, where children of poor families often get sold to less poor families. I can't call them wealthy families, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, less poor families, and they do the chores, and they clean the car and wash the dishes, and it's slavery, but it's, it's slavery where the kid actually gets fed, and, and it's just what they do, and it's terrible, but it happens. So this was Woodling's fate. And we spoke to the grandmother. Uh, she knew us well. I mean, we were familiar faces. So we just said, listen, if we can work out a way to adopt her and bring her to Canada, are you okay with that? Would you sign guardianship over to us? Uh, she said, absolutely. So my next meeting with, was with my local MP just down the road from, from Hamilton there and with Jason Kenny, and we started a process to adopt her, and that's kind of how the ball got rolling. Okay, so now why didn't that work? Oh, man, why didn't that work? Um, a lot happened. That was 2009, and I believe that uh, our MP, David Sweet, and I, I want to think that Jason Kenny as well, I think their motives at the time were right to try and help us get her to Canada. Uh, and, and Kenny's office said, you know, you're going to expect to spend five or ten grand in legal, and you're going to be eight to 12 weeks, and she'll be in Canada. Of course, this is and I'll admit this, this was getting favors because we knew these guys. I was fairly involved politically. Um, I knew a lot of the conservative guys, so they were going to help us out and, you know, move things a little quicker than normal. Right, but who's going to argue about a four-year-old child who's been adopted by a Canadian family coming home? Right. I mean, it's not like she's a security risk or anything. I mean, no, I mean... Um, so they, everybody was kind of on board, and then the earthquake happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we had just gotten to the finish line. December 15th, I was in Haiti, and I signed final paperwork for the... Haitian adoption order, and and they said give it a month or two, and and that that paperwork will be sent to the province of Ontario and sent to CIC in Canada, and and we'd be good to go. So we came back to Canada. Um, Woodleen was safe with her grandmother. Now we had already gotten her from Haiti and brought her back to Dominican to live with her grandmother. We were taking care of everybody at the time and came back to Canada. And I made a decision that by the end of January we were going to be going down and, and moving with Lean to Canada. I mean, we painted the bedroom in the house. We sent all of our stuff that was stored in Dominican Republic back to Canada. This was a move. This is happening. She's your daughter. Yeah, of course. And um, the earthquake happened. And our caseworker was killed in the earthquake. Um, all the paperwork was lost. And it's not like, it, sound, it really sounds arcane for us to think that something that big can be lost in an earthquake because we think in terms of, technology and everything's backed up a thousand times on some cloud somewhere. It's not that way in, in a lot of developing countries. Uh, you know, uh, an adoption order is written in a book <laughs> with a pen. 
right. and that's where it sits until it gets mailed to Canada, and that's where it sat, and it was buried. So we we were really in a in a bad situation, and then we went back to our our government contacts, and the people that had our back really didn't have it after that because it wasn't it wasn't politically easy for them to help us like it would have been months before, and uh, we just we realized that this is going to be an uphill battle. So. They told us to go through a traditional Ontario adoption process. Uh, we would do that and then back through and start a traditional Haitian adoption process. We're talking years of process. So we did it. So the promotional value for them wasn't there, so they weren't helping you anymore. I'm glad you said, you said that. Um, That's what it sounds like. It's, you know, it, it's actually pretty terrifying. Uh, Jason, Jason Kenny was involved on a pretty high level and... Um, because would lean had been moved from a terrible, I mean, when I say terrible situation, the houses that these people live in, if you put your dog in, in a house like that in Canada, somebody would call the SPCA and report you. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are children. Yeah. So we moved her over to Dominican Republic. She's getting, you know, four or five meals a day. She's got an iPad. You know, she's got a teddy bear, whatever. We took care of her. She's our daughter. Mm-hmm. And we gave her the life that we felt that we could and that she deserved. And when when the staff, the, the I say IRCC, but then it was called CIC, but the Immigration Canada staff uh, were looking at our, we had to do a new kind of application process and stuff. And it was all based on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Why is, why is this government, what's happened with this government? Why is she not here? Um, and that's the million-dollar question, Roy. I don't know. Um, I've met with Trudeau now three times face-to-face, and he went from, he literally went from last August, he was he, he shook my hand in Hamilton, and he said, we're going to get this done. As long as you guys fill out the right paperwork, we're going to get this done. And he went on a tour, and every single place he went, I got phone calls from his Secret Service saying, how the heck do you guys get to where we're going to be before we get there? He saw Bring Lean Home signs where he was autographing them. And he went from that to Canada Day, right here in Leamington, Ontario, looked me in the face and said, yeah, it's complicated. I'm like, wow, it's complicated. Uh, it's, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the issue is. I mean, I knew that when I, I went to the media and I started pushing them hard that they were going to get their backs up. I knew that. Um, I didn't think that they would risk the life of an innocent child because their pride was a little bit hurt. I didn't think that they were that horrible, but I guess I might have been wrong about that. So he looked you in the in the in the eye and he said, "We're going to make this happen." Yeah, got it on camera. And that was how many years ago? That was August last year, not even a year ago. Okay, so he's the prime minister of Canada. Yeah, if he, he can't can, do it, who can? Right? He just has to sign a piece of paper. Literally, a TRP, which is what we've applied for, yep. is. Fully discretionary. That's right. He all he has to do is sign it. Sign it. And she's sign here. It. And I've had fifty immigration lawyers, and two federal court judges, Amnesty International, and the Canadian Center for Statelessness, and the UNHCR all tell me this is ready to be approved. There is nothing missing. This is ready for approval. And she's not here. She's not here. And I've been arrested in Dominican Republic. I've had the crap kicked out of me by military police for protecting her. This is what, and we have an open file um, from Global Affairs Canada, because when you're traveling abroad and, and something violent happens to you, they open a file. Mm-hmm. 
and they gave me a file number, and that was that. <laughs> Vaden, where can, where, where can listeners go online to get engaged? Do you still have the petition underway? Yeah, so uh, we have a website where we try and keep up to date as much as possible. That's bringwidleanhome.com. Okay. And on there, there's a link to the petition, but if you go to change.org, type in Widleen's name, you can also get to the petition. But it's, it's linked right off the website as well. Bringwidleanhome.org. Dot com. Dot com. I'm sorry, dot com. Yeah. Bring yeah. Whittling Home dot com. And Whittling is W-I-D-L-E-N-E. You I got will, it. I will post that. Um, you and I have to talk some more, so I'll be in touch with you uh, early in the new week, and we'll continue this conversation. Now let's do that, right? Yeah, let's do it, Vaden. Let's get, let's get Whittling Home. we got to do it. All the best, my friend. All right. Thank you, Ray. Vaden Earl, uh, Whittling's Canadian dad. BringWidleanHome.com. Do you have five minutes? BringWidleanHome.com. W-I-D-L-E-N-E. Add your voice. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. 100% Roy. Somebody said to me years ago that if you're talking to someone and you're not sure whether they're being honest with you, Watch their eyes, because if they look down and to the left, they're lying. So for years, I did this. I'd look at somebody if I wasn't sure. Even in the studio, I'd be kind of looking at them, picking up little clues, you know, looking down to the left, boy, liar. Then I heard, no, that's not true at all. It's, it's just, that's just not the case. So there went that theory. But we're told that we're lied to 200 times every day on average, 200 times every day on average. A study found that over a one-week period, lies were detected in 37% of phone calls, 27% of face-to-face meetings, so more than a quarter, you're <laughs> being lied to, or you're doing the lying, 21% of, uh, of instant messaging chats, and 14% of emails. There's a fascinating book, and, uh, and, and theories that go along with it, or more than theories, the book is called Lie Spotting. Lie Spotting. You also find it. You'll find it online. You can. Uh, you'll find Lie Spotting on uh, on on Twitter as well. Pamela Meyer is the author of Lie Spotting. After her appearance on TED Talks, she received 12 million views. How many were liars and how many were truthful, Pam? <laughs> we're all liars. <laughs> They're all, all liars. Million of them were liars. <laughs> Everybody's a liar. Yeah. So we all lie. I mean, some lies are really, you know. They're really just for navigating social social dignity. And so, you know, if someone says, hey, do I look fat in that? Okay, that's all right. You know, small stakes lies are the ones we're less concerned about. And a large portion of those lies are what we call low stakes lies. Right. It's the big lies that we're concerned about. Okay, such, such as? Such as who to marry, uh, who to go work for, what house to buy, you know, things that really can puncture who to vote for. You know, when someone lies and your decision can punctuate the course of your life, that's a high-stakes lie. Yeah, we, uh, we generally, I think, uh, consider that most everything the politicians say is a lie. Or at least, or at least the, the record shows that they quite often make promises, and then they don't follow through on them. And then they'll tell us why they didn't follow through them on them, and then it's our fault. So we know that that, that, that sort of lying takes place. But on a, on a one-to-one basis, so just on a... And I'm thinking within a family, there there has to be the time when if you're lying to somebody, you're destroying that relationship or you're incrementally going to destroy the relationship. Yeah, I mean, we really have to hold each other 
accountable. And the best way to do that is not simply to say liar, liar, pants on fire and wag your finger at them. Uh The best way to do that is to be very explicit about your own moral code and to really talk about it so that people understand that your word is your bond Mm -hmm. and that you mean what you say and that you have character. And when you do that in a family situation, you actually lead with integrity as opposed to being the one who's always calling out the liars. So what do you do if you're talking to somebody, and uh, whether it's in a business, maybe you can break it down. If you're in a business conversation or if you're in a personal conversation, do you find yourself unable to divorce yourself from what you know, the lie spotting? And what what happens if, uh, I mean, what are the instant signs to you that we can uh, that we can use without, before we buy the book uh, that, that would tell us, uh-oh, red flag here? Well, so, yeah, I mean, I... It's like any other muscle, you know, it's like learning to drive. Once you've got it, you do it kind of unconsciously. So, yeah, I'm pretty much unconsciously aware oftentimes now when somebody's being deceptive. But there is a method to the madness, and it it starts really with what we call baselining. You you know, how are you? How was your weekend? Did you go shopping? How are the kids? This is what interrogators do because they're trying to get a sense of your norm. Because if you're a foot tapper and somebody asks you a hard question, you tap your foot, it doesn't mean anything. It's only when you're not a foot tapper and you're expressing that anxiety, that it's actually significant. So you first have to make sure you get it right by knowing what someone's norm is. Then you need to ask them pretty open-ended questions, not what did you do on July 23rd, but more like how did that night go? You know, ask open-ended questions, develop rapport, try to get a real sense from somebody about what happened. Stay very curious. Don't go in with, a, with what we call confirmation bias, where you think you know. You're really there to just collect facts. Mm-hmm. And when you ask those questions, then you can start to look at what we call the, the clusters that, you know, you really need to sort of check verbal and nonverbal clusters of deceit. So you might see one or two, but that doesn't really mean anything. If you see three or four on the verbal side or three or four on the nonverbal side, then you have the ability to start kind of asking harder questions and starting to build a case against somebody or to at least get to the truth in a more substantial way. If you're watching somebody um, on television, let's say, and uh, they're making a case, and they're not speaking eloquently. And uh, the more fumbly they get, the more they smile self-consciously. What are you, what are you looking at? Well, we're going to take the people on TV out of the category altogether. We call those sort of like conditioned witnesses, because anybody that's on TV, particularly a politician or a pundit, they're so conditioned to what they're saying that they say it all the time. It's kind of like a reflexive lie. But if you're across the table from someone and they start acting stressed or they stall, that might be significant. Mm -hmm. So it's only the first few seconds after you ask a hard question that's considered scientifically reliable. So if someone on the verbal side all of a sudden quiets up, looks down, or on the nonverbal side, they start to look down or pull into their chair or stiffen up in some way, or you see pursed lips or kind of slump posture, hand wringing, rubbing the eyes, grooming gestures, as we say, you know, like dusting lint off your shoulders or twirling your hair. On the nonverbal side, on the, vo- on the body language side, that can be significant. Or you may see sort of a fake smile, we call it duping delight. A lot of times, Someone who's being deceptive will kind of smile unconsciously, and you see that a lot if you start looking for it. You might see a shift in their blink rate. You know, and on the verbal side, when you hear someone just stall for time, repeat the question, say, you know, as far as I know, to tell you the truth, qualifying statements, as we call that, or bolstering statements, I certainly didn't know that. I certainly didn't do that. They start, if you see a sort of non-spontaneous response time, or they're weak, or they're apologetic in their tone of voice, 
they give you a kind of inappropriate amount of detail, which we see with teenagers all the time. You say, hey, where were you Saturday night? You didn't come home till four in the morning. And all of a sudden you get this long, involved story, <laughs> way too much detail. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes that'll be your signal that, you know, there's something underneath that story. Right. Uh, is it true that uh, that people look, I have to ask you, is it true that people look down and to the left if they're lying? It's involuntarily or, or, or not? You know, I did a full review of all the research that's out there on deception, and I threw out anything that could not be confirmed in two or more places. So we threw out studies from some of the major institutions. Okay. There's only one study in England, and this is based on neurolinguistic programming, NLP, which is where it came from, that actually looked at this, and it was not able to be confirmed. And I think this is one of these situations where science and ground truth really conflict, because there are a lot of people out there that do feel the way you shift your eyes could signal whether or not you're accessing imagination versus, uh, you know, a memory. Right. But there's no science to it that I could find. What's your favorite story that's come out of lie spotting? Something that somebody shared with you? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I mean, we've had so many, so many stories, but the most interesting stories are the ones of people who are falsely accused. Oftentimes, someone who really doesn't know the science, doesn't know it well, has seen something on Law and Order, one of these TV shows, will will go into an interrogation, particularly in a business setting, and they'll just crush somebody. They're like, "Where were we? Where were you on the third of December? We know you're the one who took that computer out. We've got a camera." And they're baiting them and they're pummeling them with questions, and they get what you call a stress response from the person across the table from them. And oftentimes they get accused wrongly, and it turns out the evidence is really completely conflicts what they found in that interview. And so there's a lot of cautionary tales out there more than anything else of people who are wrongly accused because someone walks in the door and they, they're not careful. They don't, they're not prepared enough for the conversation. They don't spend enough time. They're not curious enough. And they just wrongly accuse somebody because they're stressed. Okay. Well, I, I find it absolutely fascinating, and I'm, I'm glad you spent the time with us. Lie spotting, it's available online at Amazon, right? It is, and you know, if you watch my TED Talk, you can learn in 17 minutes ba- the basic science of lie spotting. You still have to go out there and practice it, but you can learn the basics. And you find that on YouTube real quickly, right? Or, yeah. or on, through your website. Exactly. Pam Meyer, thank you so much for the time. Uh, I, I'm looking straight ahead now. <laughs> that was a delight, <laughs> and that's the truth. Take good care. Thanks. Pamela Meyer, lie spotting. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.